You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 121, Ironworks Hill. When we last left the Continental Army, Washington was probably at the lowest point in his life. His attempts even to put up a decent defense against the British invasion of New York had failed completely. By December 1776, his army had retreated across New Jersey and into Pennsylvania. The only reason the British stopped their advance was that General Howe decided to call off any further campaigning and put his armies into winter quarters. The British controlled all of the area around New York, took all of New Jersey, and had moved unopposed into Rhode Island. General Howe wrote self-congratulatory letters back to London, saying that his forces had accomplished everything they had planned for the year. Of course, that wasn't completely true. The British had originally planned to move up the Hudson River through New York and meet up with the British forces under General Carleton in Canada. Carleton was to have moved down the Hudson River thus cutting off New England from the rest of the colonies. That didn't happen, mostly because Benedict Arnold had forced Carleton to delay his advance. Carleton needed to build his navy on Lake Champlain to defeat Arnold at Valcour Island. The delay in doing that forced Carleton to delay his invasion of New York until the following spring. So while General Arnold had delayed British plans, General Washington had not stopped General Howe from doing much of anything he wanted. Everyone seemed to come to the conclusion that General Washington just wasn't up to the task of taking on the full British army. Thousands of Continental soldiers now sat in prison ships in New York Harbor, dying from disease and starvation. Thousands more deserted the Continental Army with little desire to join their comrades on the prison ships once the final surrender came. By some estimates, Washington's army had dwindled to below 3,000 men by the time his army crossed the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. New York and New Jersey militia did not march with the army. Pennsylvania militia had not yet arrived. General Lee still had several thousand Continental soldiers in northern New Jersey and refused Washington's increasingly desperate requests that he joined him in Pennsylvania. After General Lee's capture, General Sullivan still needed time to move the Continentals in North Jersey to meet up with Washington just outside of Philadelphia. Likewise, General Horatio Gates was marching with reinforcements from Fort Ticonderoga, but they too were still on the march and had not yet reached Washington. Many in Congress had lost faith in Washington as well. They had talked of turning over command to General Lee. British leadership seemed to hold the same opinion. When they captured General Lee on December 13th, they saw it as a more important victory than the capture of 3,000 Continental soldiers at Fort Washington. Lee was the only general they seemed to respect. Fortunately for the Patriots, the capture put off talk of replacing Washington for a time. It also ensured that Lee's army would finally join with Washington near Philadelphia. 
Washington even had to be doubting himself by this time. By the end of December, most of the remaining Continental enlistments would expire. His army would almost certainly choose to go home, as had earlier enlistments. Washington sent many of his officers home to recruit a new army. But no one seemed interested to sign up in what looked like a losing cause. Thomas Paine did his part by publishing the crisis, which I covered last week. However, there was no good evidence that that would do any good before the end of the year, if at all. Despite bleak prospects for the war, there was still some good reason to resist the British occupation. British General Howe wanted his units in New Jersey to live off the land in terms of getting food and other supplies needed to maintain themselves over the winter. This meant more British and Hessian soldiers interacting with civilians in a way that was not always pleasant for the civilians. In earlier episodes, I've alluded to the problems of looting and pillaging. Remember that British regulars were dirt poor. Their pay was 8 pence a day. That's roughly $10 per day when converted to inflation-adjusted dollars. But even that amount, by the time all deductions were made for food, uniforms, and a host of other expenses, soldiers were lucky to receive maybe one-fourth of that. Their Hessian allies were paid even less. These were men living at bare subsistence, often without enough clothes to keep warm or enough food to stop from feeling hungry. When they came across abandoned homes or other property, they would help themselves to whatever they could, unless officers prevented it. In that case, they had to do it on the sly. Obtaining alcohol or any small valuables that could later be sold were prime targets. But really, just about anything they could carry would go. At times, looting was part of a war strategy. Some officers thought the rebels should suffer after having rejected the king's protection. However, General Howe's offer of pardon and amnesty was supposed to protect those who had signed oaths of allegiance. The soldiers, however, were not particularly careful to make that distinction. Many New Jersey Tories, who had welcomed the regulars as liberators, soon found their homes and personal items ravaged. And not all the pillaging was for personal gain, either. Rampaging soldiers often burned homes and simply destroyed property that they could not take with them. They argued that civilians, even those who were claiming loyalty, were all really rebels and would soon turn back to rebellion as soon as the soldiers moved on. The harm and cruelties were also not just limited to property. Rapes were another serious problem. There were thousands of reported rapes of all sorts, from girls as young as 10 to women in their 70s. Married women and children were gang-raped in front of their husbands, fathers, and brothers. These brutal acts of violence often compounded with beatings, threats of murder, and actual murder. Many of the British officers put blame for these abuses on the Hessian soldiers. But British regulars did engage in such abuses as well. Whether Hessians were more to blame is questionable, since British officers had incentive to blame their allies. If the abuses were committed by their own troops, that reflected poorly on the officers. If committed by Hessian soldiers, the blame fell primarily on the Hessian officers. 
Therefore, British officers had a strong incentive to always blame the Hessians for any abuses. Whatever the percentage of blame, it is clear that Hessians engaged in some great share of the pillaging, looting, and raping across New Jersey. As I said, Hessians were paid even less than British regulars. Most enlisted men had come from families in abject poverty back in the German states and who had virtually no rights at all. Seeing colonists who enjoyed comparative wealth and freedom and who still dared commit treason against their king made many Hessians justify their ill-treatment as just punishment. Had the invaders limited their assaults to patriot households, that might not have been so bad for British policy. But many loyalists quickly fell victim to military abuses, theft, destruction of property, assaults, and even murder. Many who had spoken for the loyalist cause as the way to protect law and order now had reason to question their views. Many were experiencing a tyranny that made many question their loyalties to the king. The soldiers they once hailed as liberators had become their abusers. British officers did make some attempts to rein in soldier abuses, but the leadership did not seem terribly concerned about it. Military victories would convince the citizenry to end the rebellion. Once they returned to keeping the king's peace, the military occupation could end and the abuses would also go away. Initially, the plan seemed to work. General Howe's amnesty program motivated thousands across New York and New Jersey to swear allegiance to the king in return for a full pardon. The British set out a series of outposts across New Jersey where subjects could see that they were in charge. With any luck, the Continental Army would dissolve over the winter, and Howe could extend his amnesty across the continent without having to butcher thousands more on both sides. Before Howe returned to New York for the winter, he personally surveyed and posted his army along the Delaware River, making sure the Americans would not attempt to cross back into New Jersey. He left General James Grant in overall command of the region. For those of you keeping track of such things, we first met General Grant back in Episode 12, when he was a mere major captured near Fort Duquesne near the end of the French and Indian War, and again in episode 15, when as a lieutenant colonel, he attacked the Cherokee at the Battle of Echoe in South Carolina. After the French and Indian War, Grant served as governor of East Florida for a time, then returned home to England to be elected to Parliament. There, he was one of the toughest talking members against the Brewing Rebellion. Grant said the Patriots would never stand up to military action and that he could march across the entire continent with only 5,000 regulars. When war broke out, he received a commission as full colonel and traveled with General Howe to Boston in 1775. After Howe replaced General Thomas Gage as overall military commander in North America, Grant received a promotion to brigadier general. His leadership during the Battle of Brooklyn had led to yet another promotion to Major General. Despite his rise in rank, Grant did not seem to have the respect of his officers and men. Like General Howe, he seemed more interested in personal comforts than in success or even the safety of the men under his command. General Grant set up his headquarters in Brunswick, New Jersey, closer to New York City, 
than to the outposts he commanded along the Delaware River. The ranking officer actually present at the outposts was Hessian Colonel Carl von Dunup. General Howe ordered von Dunup with a force of about 2,000 Hessians to occupy Bordentown, New Jersey, a small town just a few miles south of Trenton along the Delaware River. At the time, Bordentown had only a couple of dozen houses, nowhere near enough buildings to house the 2,000 Hessians for the winter. Also, as it bordered the Delaware River, the Hessians attracted military fire from ships and continentals on the other side of the river. Von Dunham had to move inland and scatter his forces in farmhouses around the countryside. Some estimates say that Von Dunham had about 3,000 men under his command. However, this may include the division that was also deployed to Von Dunham South. Howe directed Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Sterling, an officer commanding the 42nd Regiment, also known as the Black Watch, as well as a battalion of Hessians. Sterling's men would occupy Burlington, New Jersey, about 10 miles southeast of Bordentown. Again, Burlington was not large enough to house even this smaller force and suffered enemy artillery fire from the river. Sterling also deployed his forces a few miles south of Burlington and further inland, scattering them among several farmhouses and barns in the area. To Colonel von Donop's north was Colonel Johann Rahl. He commanded about 1,400 Hessians stationed at Trenton. Rahl held an independent command and did not report directly to von Donop, but instead reported to General Grant. At least Trenton, with about a hundred buildings, was large enough to accommodate most of Rawls' soldiers, even if they did have to pack themselves into pretty tight quarters. To support these frontline outposts, General Howe established a supply depot at Princeton, further inland and about 13 miles north of Trenton. There, General Alexander Leslie commanded another brigade of British infantry. For those paying attention, this is the same Colonel Leslie who led the raid on Salem back in 1775 before Lexington and Concord. See episode 46. By early 1776, he had received a promotion to Brigadier General. The British deployment was not particularly defensible. These were thousands of soldiers spread over lately populated countryside with no forts or other particularly defensible positions. Their focus was more on pacifying the region, hunting down small groups of rebels or bandits, and making sure everyone knew they occupied New Jersey. No one expected the crippled Continental Army to attempt any sort of large attack. If an attack did come, the forces were a few hours' march away from each other, so any of the outposts should be able to hold out until relief could arrive. While many in New Jersey had accepted the British occupation and sought amnesty, there remained a hard core of militia who continued to harass the British at every opportunity. These were not conventional soldiers, nor were they even really organized militia that were operating under a clear chain of command. They were essentially civilians with guns. They could not take on the British Army or even the outposts that were set up. However, they could shoot at British messengers that traveled between units 
or attack supply trains providing food and supplies to the outposts or other individuals that went out of the main camp. If the British sent out companies of soldiers to track down the guerrillas, they would find only civilians who had hidden their guns and now claimed to be loyal subjects who knew nothing about the attacks in the area. The British knew they were in hostile territory, but were frustrated that they could not get the enemy to stand and fight on a battlefield. Across the river in Pennsylvania, George Washington had decided that if there was anything he could do before the army evaporated at the end of the year, just a few weeks away, he needed to do it. If fearful New Jersey civilians could see that they were not completely abandoned by the Continental Army, they might begin to rally around the American cause once again. Washington also did not want to let the enemy get comfortable settling into winter quarters. Anything they could do to harass and annoy the enemy had to continue. On December 17th, Washington ordered Colonel Samuel Griffin from Virginia to cross over into New Jersey. Griffin commanded a force of about 600 men, a few Virginia artillerymen with small field cannon, along with mostly Pennsylvania and New Jersey militia. The force made its way to Mount Holly, New Jersey, where they set up a defensive position at the top of a small hill near the local ironworks. Mount Holly was close to the southernmost British outpost, commanded by Colonel Sterling. However, Sterling did not receive word of the American incursion into New Jersey, or if he did, he simply reported it to Colonel Von Dunup and did not deploy any of his soldiers. In Bordentown, Von Dunup received word of the American presence. Some accounts indicate that his soldiers encountered rebels attempting to steal cattle. They informed the British that more than a thousand rebels had encamped near Mount Holly. Von Dunup and the American Griffin had met on the field of battle once before. Both men had led their battalions into the battle at Harlem Heights, where Colonel Griffin was wounded. It's not clear, however, that either man knew much about the other or their previous encounter. Von Dunup moved nearly all of the 3,000 soldiers under his command to confront the enemy. On December 21st, the Patriots encountered a small British force holding Petticoat Bridge over the Assincunk Creek. Outnumbered, the British outpost fell back to the north to meet up with Von Dunup's main 3,000-man force. The following day, the main body of Hessians recaptured the bridge. A brief skirmish took place, with a few casualties on each side. The Americans then fell back to Mount Holly. That same day, Washington's aide, Colonel Joseph Reed, rode into New Jersey to find Colonel Griffin. He asked Griffin to keep the Hessians engaged in order to distract them as Washington prepared to cross the Delaware River and attack further north. Reed was pleased to find that Griffin had already engaged the enemy and was well into keeping them occupied. It's not entirely clear if Washington sent Griffin into New Jersey with the intent of creating a distraction away from his newly formed plan to attack the Trenton garrison. There are no written instructions to that effect. Washington may have simply sent Griffin more to get a better idea of the locations and numbers of British forces in the area. The decision to use Griffin to distract and divide the enemy probably came later, hence Reed's visit on December 22nd. 
Reed himself called the engagement at Mount Holly accidental, but with happy effect. Reed sent a messenger back to Washington, letting him know that the enemy was scattered and divided, making an immediate attack advisable. Reed suggested either supporting Griffin or making a separate attack while Van Dunnop's forces were so far from Trenton. A day later, December 23rd, the Hessian force under Van Dunnop moved into Mount Holly. The two sides engaged in a firefight lasting several hours and involving the use of field cannon. The Hessians eventually forced the smaller American battalion to fall back to their defensive position on Ironworks Hill. The two sides continued in an exchange of fire, but the Hessians did not attempt to take the hill. The American force was entrenched on the hill and had its own field cannons to deter any assault. They were outnumbered, however, and that evening the Americans retreated to Moorestown, leaving Mount Holly to the Hessians. By some accounts, there were up to a hundred casualties on both sides combined. That may be a little exaggerated, though. By most accounts, indicate that there were only two or three killed on each side and maybe a dozen wounded. Colonel von Dunup and his army occupied Mount Holly. The Hessians looted houses, apparently found a fair amount of alcohol, and got drunk. With the Patriot Army having withdrawn, and with most of the local population having fled town, Van Dunup decided not to pursue the enemy any further for the moment. Instead, he allowed his troops to enjoy the town. Though most of the locals fled, there is a story of one young widow who remained in town and entertained Van Dunup. Some historians have speculated that this widow might have been Betsy Ross, though I could find no good evidence to support this theory. Whoever she was, the widow apparently caused Von Dunup to want to remain in town for a few days. Another Hessian officer noted that Von Dunup had a weakness for the ladies and was smitten by this beautiful young widow. With the Patriot force still in the area and finding reasonably comfortable accommodations in Mount Holly, Von Dunup and his men spent Christmas in the town. Von Dunup's decision to remain in Mount Holly meant that Colonel Rawl and his Hessian force in Trenton were isolated and at least a day's march away from Von Dunup's larger force of Hessians. Next week, Washington crosses the Delaware with his target, that isolated outpost in Trenton. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to thank the continued support of Tyson France at Liberty and Company, a member of the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. Tyson and Liberty and Co. sell a wide variety of revolution and constitution related items online. Among the items Tyson has for sale are some great custom whiskey glasses. One has a map showing the battles of Lexington and Concord. Another has the beginning of the U.S. Constitution etched onto it. Pretty cool gift for lawyers. There's also a Green Dragon Tavern mug, which fans of Colonial Boston will appreciate, or Live Free or Die mugs. I really enjoy all of Tyson's stuff, and with Christmas approaching, this could be a great time to hint to your loved ones that you would really like something that displays your interest in the revolution this year. Tyson donates a portion of his profits to the Museum of the American Revolution. On top of that, you can get a 20% discount if you enter the promo code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, at checkout. To get to the site, go to libertyand.co. There is also a link to it on the amrevpodcast.com website. Today's episode hits particularly close to home for me, quite literally. Mount Holly, New Jersey is only a few miles from my house, and it's the town where I attend the American Revolution Roundtable meetings each month. Mount Holly holds an annual event each December commemorating the battle. But beyond that, I don't think this battle gets a whole lot of notice. Whether planned or not, this battle altered the Hessian defenses, thus making Washington's attack on Trenton a few days later possible. Imagine what would have happened if two or three thousand Hessian reinforcements showed up at Trenton during the battle, or even immediately afterward, when the Continentals were struggling to get back across the river into Pennsylvania. The Battle of Ironworks Hill in Mount Holly ensured that that did not happen. In the end, the battle was a minor skirmish, with relatively few casualties, and of course would be overshadowed by the major events over the next couple of weeks, that it had played a role in starting. So there's no book that focuses on the Battle of Mount Holly. Even the books that focus on Washington's Crossing and the next few battles pretty much ignore Mount Holly or just give it a minor mention. That's the case even though this small event made those other bigger events possible. Now there are a bunch of books that I want to recommend to you over the next few weeks that involve these really crucial events of the war but none of them really does justice to the Battle of Ironworks Hill. So this week, I'm going to punt and recommend a book that has nothing to do with anything I've been talking about this week. There's a new book that is slated for release next month called A Crisis of Peace by David Head. The book is an up-close look at the very end of the American Revolution, more than a year after Yorktown and a few months before the Treaty of Paris. The Continental Army was sitting in Newburgh, New York, keeping an eye on the British occupation that was still holding New York City. The British had ended all offensive operations after Yorktown, so the Army was getting pretty bored. 
Even worse, the American people thought the threat had passed and that they could go about living their lives. They just didn't want to pay taxes to pay off the war debt because, well, you know how Americans feel about taxes. As a result, the Continental Army, which still had to remain in the field until the British left, were woefully behind on back pay and often not receiving adequate food and clothing. The soldiers suffered terribly, while the civilian world simply went about their business. Of even greater concern than the conditions was the fear that Congress would not keep its promises to the soldiers about pensions and land. Congress had made a great many promises at desperate points during the war in order to keep the men in the field. Now that it was coming close to the time for the army to disperse and go home, there was still no action to fulfill any of these promises. The Newburgh conspiracy consisted of officers and men who were going to demand that Congress keep its promises, even if that meant marching to Philadelphia with their muskets and forcing Congress to act. For me, there are two particularly great moments in Washington's life. One is the celebrated crossing of the Delaware River, which I'm going to talk about next week. The other is his performance in Newburgh. Washington effectively convinced his army to stand down and respect civilian leadership of Congress, no matter what. His actions at Newburgh helped establish the American tradition of civilian leadership over the military that has lasted to this day. It's often something we take for granted today, but history could have gone in a very different direction, and we have George Washington to thank for the fact that it did not. The book focuses on the events, looking at the men and moments that diffused this explosive situation and transitioned the United States into the post-war peace. The author, Dr. Price, is a professor at the University of Central Florida. He's written a few other books on the history of piracy and privateering. His look in this new book about the Newburgh conspiracy doesn't really seem to cover any new ground, but it is a good, solid, in-depth look at these important events. If you are interested, Crisis of Peace releases on December 3rd, 2019. You can pre-order today if you want to get it before Christmas. My online recommendation this week is a website, revolutionarywar.us. They have a good page summarizing the battle at Ironworks Hill, but the site has a lot of great information about the entire war large and small battles, the armies, and a great deal of other statistics. It's a great resource for all sorts of things. If you want to check it out, go directly to revolutionarywar.us or check out the link on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>